Hello and welcome to the first of our podcasts, Short Briefings on Long-Term Thinking. Thanks for joining us. I'm Malcolm Borthwick, Managing Editor of Intellectual Capital at Bailey Gifford. Another China crisis, the coming collapse of China's Ponzi scheme economy, and is the world ready for a Chinese stock market crash? These are just some of the recent headlines about China, predicting that the country is about to descend into economic chaos and market meltdown. So is it? I'm joined in the studio by Roddy Snell, who's manager of the Pacific Fund and deputy manager of the Pacific Horizon Investment Trust. But before we start our conversation, some important information. Please remember that as with all investments, your capital is at risk. We'll be talking about emerging markets in this podcast, which can be more volatile than developed markets. So Roddy, consumer debt problems, trade wars, property bubbles, is China about to implode? No, I don't think so, um, Malcolm. I mean, certainly the economy might have an adjustment and a slowdown like any normal functioning economy. But I think some of the headlines you've been touting are somewhat overdramatic. And they remind me a lot of what's really been going on over the past 40 years in China, which is that Western commentators have been continually bearish on the economy. But I think we should remember that they have been wrong for those four decades. And I might start by just you know, reminding you and our listeners you know, just how successful China has been over the past 40 years. I met a professor out in Beijing recently who was famous for being one of the first people to swim between China and Taiwan, uh, the Chumei Islands, which is part of Taiwan. But he was actually very unusual in that he was swimming in the opposite direction to usual. In 1978, he was one of the first people to swim from Taiwan to China. He was one of the first defectors back to the mainland. And what did he find when he landed? Well, he entered a country that was poorer than Uganda, with about 80% of people still working in the fields. But the speed and scale of economic transformation over the following you know, 30, 40 years is second to none in history. You know, we had GDP per capita growing 50-fold and the equivalent of the entire US population being brought up into the middle class. Now, you might say, you know, why does that matter to us? And I think the key point for us to remember is that the Chinese economic model, which is very different from the West, has been stunningly successful, but also far more resilient than many Western commentators have predicted. You know, we should remember that whenever we've been told China's about to have a hard landing, you know, the bears have been wrong for 40 years. Now, that's not to say there aren't issues in the economy. You know, there always will be with an economy the size of China's. But, you know, the big picture is, I think China's economy is in a pretty reasonable shape uh, for the next five to 10 years. There's been an escalation in the trade war between the US and China. What impact do you think that will have on China? Well, if you read headlines at the moment, you think the country was about to implode because of this issue. I don't think it's nearly as serious as what you might first envisage. And it's probably worth just putting a few numbers you know, on that. You know, firstly, exports just aren't as important to China as they used to be. Net exports are less than 2% of China's nominal GDP today. Secondly, you know, if you look at China's external merchandise trade, you know, it's about $4 trillion, of which the US is about $600 billion. So the US is only about 15%. Say we have tariffs on 200 billion of that, that number goes down to about 5%. So just worth keeping these things in context. It's not a huge number for China. And finally, let's not forget that putting tariffs on goods doesn't instantly mean demand is going to shift away from China. The first impact is that tariffs are likely simply to cause inflation in the US, for example. The supply chains that China have can't be upended overnight. So actually, I'm pretty sanguine on the outlook for a trade war with the US and China. 
The other area that's been raised as a focus of concern for China is debt, Roddy. Is that something that concerns you? It's certainly an area that China needs to keep an eye on. First point might be that debt is in itself in China I don't think is too high, as you might be led to believe in the papers, particularly given China's high saving rates. Even areas that look very high, like shadow banking, you know, 80% of GDP. You, know, you compare that to the UK, for example, where in some measures we've got 300% of shadow banking debt. So the absolute level's okay. The issue you've got in China is that it has grown incredibly quickly. You know, it's doubled over the past several years. So there will be undoubtedly some debt issues in China. The key point, however, is that any debt crisis you ever have in emerging markets isn't about bad debts per se. It's about a funding crisis. It's about being unable to fund that debt. And China is some, somewhere away from having an issue. You know, it's got some unique characteristics. You know, it's got a closed capital account, a current account surplus, three trillion of FX reserves, uh, and its banks are all deposit funded. So there is no funding issue in the country at the moment. Also, let's not forget that the government has huge tools and levers that it can pull. Government debt GDP is one of the lowest in the world, you know, around 20% of GDP, uh, and they've got huge assets. You know, they own all the land in the country, which is probably worth you know, $20, 30000000000000 trillion plus as a very broad estimate. So for those reasons, I think China is OK. It can't carry on on this debt fueled expansion, which is probably why it's such a good thing that they have actually started to cut back over the past 12 months. So we've seen a big clampdown in that shadow banking area we were mentioning earlier. And that's actually led to a bit of weakness in the economy, which has got people a little bit concerned. But long term, I think that's actually a very good thing. So I think they're doing the right things in the country. And if they continue doing that, then no, I don't have a big concern about debt in the country. And what's interesting is you talk about the model in China. Is it the case that maybe we don't understand that model or we're misinterpreting it? Yeah, I think there's just always been a lot of scepticism about the economic model and the political model that the country's had. And I suppose what's interesting, if you look at the countries that have been successful in emerging markets, i.e. those that have emerged, you know, typically they have had a period where they've had strong political willpower and the ability to get things done. You know, and in China, that's been the one-party rule. Places like Korea and Taiwan, it's been you know, military or one-party rule as well. And that's been hugely helpful for a period of time. Um, certainly, I think well, there's an argument if you're going to continue developing, you perhaps want to move to a more democratic model. And perhaps that's going to be one of the big challenges for China over the next 10, 20 years, is whether you can keep the one-party rule going and having a vibrant economy, which has been achieved to date. But I think that's probably one of the biggest question marks we would have. And do you think that's helped some companies in China build scale maybe slightly quicker than they would have done if they'd been elsewhere? Yeah, I think certainly in some instances. I suppose if you look at the most successful companies over the last decade, they've certainly been concentrated in the private sector in China. And I'd probably highlight the internet companies, you know, as the, the sort of shining examples of those. And they've really benefited in many ways from some of the issues of China, uh, in particular, the problems of foreign companies being able to operate successfully in the country. You know, if you look at the likes of Yahoo and Google, they actually had to exit the country 10, 12 years ago. And then from behind the bamboo curtain, if you like, the internet giants in China, the likes of Tencent, Alibaba, Baidu, were able to build up very successful companies. In many ways, helped by the fact that China was incredibly keen to adopt new technology. You know, unlike the West, they didn't have shiny shopping malls, etc. So in many ways, they were keener to move online than we were in the West. And that's been a huge growth opportunity for the past 10 years to a number of Chinese private technology businesses. Because in some respects, they've been able to maybe leapfrog tech companies in the West due to this appetite, as you mentioned, for rapid adoption. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think that's been one of the biggest advantages <laughs> that the Chinese companies have. There's just been this feverish desire to adopt new technology. And you see it all around the country. You know, as a sort of naive Westerner, if you go to places like Shanghai or Beijing, you can feel quite out of place. Quite recently, I went on a trip to try and go for a business lunch. First of all, I couldn't order a taxi because I didn't have the right hailing app. You, know, you get to the restaurant, you can't then order a meal because you haven't got the right app downloaded on your phone. Finally downloaded the app, managed to order my food, but split the bill with a table of 15 next door. And actually coming to paying was actually the hardest part. You know, No one takes <laughs> credit cards uh, in China. You know, I took out a credit card and it looked at me like I was a medieval knight who would just walk <laughs> through the door trying to pay in ancient coins. So e-payments in China are about $17 trillion last year, about 50 times bigger than mobile payments in the US, for instance. So yeah, a huge propensity to adopt technology, which has been one of the biggest tailwinds for the tech companies in China over the past 10 years, and I think will continue to be so for the next decade. And this is part of the wider trend that we're seeing of rebalancing in China from the economy moving from an economy which is maybe investment-led to an economy that's more consumer-led. Where do you think we are in that process? Yeah, so this is probably one of the most important changes in China over the past decade and needs to continue. As you mentioned, we've had a, a very heavy investment-led economy, particularly after the global financial crisis, where China in many ways bailed out the rest of the world with huge stimulus in the country. But crucially, the rebalancing scales have, in many ways, already tipped. Consumption and services now accounts for more than 50% of GDP and pretty much all, you know, 70-80% of GDP growth. Tell me a little bit about where the balance lies in terms of consumer demand. So we've seen demand in all areas in China, really, which you might expect from you know, such a large country with a dispersion of wealth. I suppose we're finding the fastest growth, perhaps in the middle income bracket, particularly in a number of technology type businesses. But I suppose where we find the fastest growth is perhaps as we move into that sort of $10,000, $15,000 income bracket. Demand for certain goods doesn't usually happen in a straight line, but in steps or waves as households go over certain thresholds of affordability. So when people are earning two, $3,000, they suddenly start to buy branded toothpaste. $5,000, it's a smartphone. and $10,000, it's a car. And some of our investments have been very successful in anticipating some of those waves. So, for example, we bought a company called Gili, the auto company that bought Volvo back in 2010, 2011. And we purchased Gili in about 2013. And that was really based on two broad factors. Firstly, we thought the number of households earning ten dollars to $15,000 was set to increase dramatically. And that's a really important number because that's when people typically start to look at buying an SUV, a sports utility vehicle, over a car. And we thought Gili would be a winner in that space because of the Volvo technology that they had taken over from the European manufacturer. And I should make absolutely clear that before they had Volvo, they made terrible cars. (laughs) I test drove one on a track back in 08. The gear stick fell off in my hand as I was going around (laughs) a corner. So they were terrible. And you were okay when the gear stick came off in your hand? (laughs) <laughs> the most worrying thing was actually that the Gigi chaperone was obviously quite used to this. Uh, he had a little bag of tricks where he just went into and took out a, a, essentially a plank of wood uh, and rammed <laughs> it straight back in. So um, it was obviously a common fault. Yeah, don't try that at home. One of the interesting other trends that we're seeing is uh, more spending in China on things like R&D and innovation. I mean, to some extent, are we seeing the balance shifting with innovative companies maybe from Silicon Valley more towards China? It's certainly what China is trying to achieve, and the amount of money they're putting into R&D is enormous and has been very successful. 
China now spends more on R&D than Europe and is likely to overtake the US in the next one to two years. I mean, over the next five or six years, it's pretty likely to exceed the US and Europe combined. So huge efforts on R&D spending. And we're seeing it work. You know, a number of the companies we invest in in China, particularly in the internet space and some of the tech hardware spaces, are coming up with world-leading businesses and technology. And I think if you look at the trade war that you mentioned earlier, you know, I think in many ways that might be a bit of a shy show. I think what the US is really worried about is China at some point over the next 10, 15 years achieving or coming close to achieving tech dominance over the US. And so I think this is really a tech war rather than a trade war. Thanks for joining us, Roddy, to chat about China. And you can find our podcast, Short Briefings on Long-Term Thinking at baileygifford.com. Home or away? Our next podcast will focus on whether going global is the best approach for investors looking for a regular income. And many thanks to Lord of the Isles for the music. The track we've used is called Horizon Effect, which was released on permanent vacation.